that um, approached a little league game, and he was a little late for the game, and as he was walking up, there was a kid standing in the dugout, and he went over to the edge of the dugout, and he said, what's the score? And the kid turned around, and he said, it's 18 to nothing, and we're behind. And the man said to the little boy, well, I bet you're discouraged. And to that, the little boy said, why should I be discouraged? We haven't even batted yet. (laughs) If you are visionary, you understand that statement. There are three types of people when it comes to visionary people. The first is those who can't see the vision. Second are those who can see the vision, but they do not want you to accomplish it. And then you have the third, those who can see the vision, and they want to do their part in helping get it accomplished. And so my question to you is, which one of those people are you? Do you look at things that are half full or half empty? Do you look at the church in its current state and the current picture that we have for the church and you think, oh, the church is on a downward spiral and and, and there's just no hope for the church? Or do you, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you believe that God is working, that there is faith in God, that the op- the God's going to offer, offer op- opportunities for us as he opens the door for us, the building of his kingdom. Many do not look at the church in that way. They look at the church as, man, I just can't believe that this is happening, or I can't believe that there are those who are saying that, or, or people are, are leaving the church, leaving our church. Do we have faith that God will present opportunity for his kingdom? Do we have faith that God will work through us, in us, through his church. Are we in despair or are we seeking, looking for repair? In other words, the work of Christ as he moves through believers in the church. Today we're starting this series. There will be seven sermons And there will be seven weeks of devotion for you and I to do together. And let me tell you my expectation of us as a church. And for those of you that worship with us online, if I have one of our documents, the 50 Days to Vitality, I'll be glad to send that to you. Just send me an email. But these seven sermons and these seven weeks of devotions We are to participate together, and that's the way it's going to work, is for us to look together about what God is going to do in and through us as a church called Hope. 
This first section, this first theme today comes from the book of Nehemiah. And you might say, well, why in the world would we use a book that was written in the 400s, and that's not the 400s AD, but the 400s BC. Why would we use a book that was written that long ago? A man who was in exile. Why? Well, Nehemiah was one of the greatest visionary leaders that's recorded in Scripture. Not the only one, but one of the great ones. And he pulled off one of the amazing events that's recorded in Scripture. Just one of them. There's a lot of amazing events. But Nehemiah rebuilding, repairing, bringing revitalization to a nation called Israel, a city called Jerusalem. He had one of the greatest rebuilding projects that's recorded in Scripture. And it's one that we're going to take a look at this man and just a little bit about his mission as we talk today. If you have your Bibles and want to follow along, uh, Nehemiah 1, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 11. Uh, Scripture will be on the screen if you need it there, but if you have your Bibles, that would be great for you to follow along. So hear this, the word of God. The word of Nehemiah, the son of Hazelah. Now it had happened that the month of Shephas, in the twelfth year, while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. They said to me, the remnant there in the providence who survived the captivity are in great distress and the reproach and the walls of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. When I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and mourned for days and I fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. I said, I beseech you, O God of heaven, the great and awesome God, to preserve the covenant and loving, loving kindness for those who, you, who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear now be attentive to your eyes, open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have, kept the, and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote 
parts of heaven. I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servants successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray once more. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, for you are our strength and our redeemer. I pray, Father, that you would illuminate our hearts and minds for what you would hold for us through this, your holy word. We pray this in your name. Amen. Of course, Nehemiah was a Hebrew, and he was taken captive in the exile, taken out by Babylon in bondage, and he was held there in the Persian court. And while there, he became a cupbearer to the king, and it sounds minimal, but he had influence. He not only had the ear of the king, but he was responsible as the wine tester, and it was not just to determine whether the wine that the king was drinking was vintage. It was but also to ensure that the king was not poisoned. So his responsibility was great. Uh, he had the trust of the king, and often he would even guard the entrance for those who would come in to the royal chambers. If you have watched any of the seasons or episodes of The Crown, he would be like the man Alan, which was called Tommy, that would be an aide to Queen Elizabeth as she took the, the crown and the throne in, um, in England. And so Nehemiah was important. He had a place in the king's court. He was present at almost every instance that the king was present before anyone. The story begins about 446 B.C. in the citadel of Susa, as the book of Nehemiah tells us. This is the winter resort for the king. The Persian kings would, uh, would winter in the citadel of Susa, and, and Nehemiah's plan is set in motion there while this takes place. And this, this uh, Hebrew word in verse 1 reminds us that this is somewhere around December in this particular year. And that's important for us to know because as you move forward in the book, we will see that Nehemiah actually four months later is able to begin this mission to go to Jerusalem to do what the Lord has called him to do. And so he is right now in a position of power. He is in a position of prestige and comfort because of his service to the king. But the people, his people back in Jerusalem are powerless. They are desperate. They are struggling for survival. 
And Nehemiah has to make a choice. What am I going to do? How many of us would make the choice to leave the comfort, the protection, and the power that we would have in this case and go to Jerusalem? The people of Judah and the city of Jerusalem had been destroyed. They were in terrible condition. 150 years earlier, Nebuchadnezzar had gone in. He had conquered. He had destroyed. The armies of Babylon had invaded Israel. They had taken the people away into slavery. And they had destroyed the city, the temple, all that was there. And the Jews desperately wanted to go back and as they were released, or in this case, escaped and went back to Jerusalem, they wanted to bring Jerusalem and Judea, Judah, back to its former glory. And God needed someone to help with that. Someone that was different. Someone that was faithful to God even in their circumstances. Someone that had the fire of the Holy Spirit upon them to do the work of God for God's purpose. God needed a man that would change the situation and do it in the name of God. And this man was Nehemiah. God had been preparing him to be a vessel to be used greatly by him in this restoration effort, this revitalization plan that God was going to work with the nation of Israel. And so we, we have in verse 3 where he asked this question, you know, what is going on in Jerusalem and what is taking place? And, and they report to him what is, is going on. The people that had been in captivity did not return all at one time. Uh, Jerezebel had brought back about 50,000 uh, with him. And Ezra, when he went back to build the temple, had brought back about 20,000 with him. And when Nehemiah goes back, there's about 10,000 who had been in captivity that goes back with Nehemiah to help with the rebuilding project. But these who were now in Jerusalem were, were there. And though the, the temple had been rebuilt by Ezra and, and the efforts there, and though houses had been rebuilt that had been destroyed, the walls were still down. The gates were still down. They had been burned. Any of the towers that were there to protect against their enemy had fallen. Everything around the city was laying in ruins. It was in shambles. The city was defenseless. It was vulnerable against attack. And this, as the scripture reminds us here, was the place where God had chosen for his name to be, for him to dwell in the temple. And so this holy city, Israel's spiritual and national identity, was in such a shameful state. 
And they report this to Nehemiah. And he is broken. He is weeping. Now, you and I may live thousands of years past this event that happened in the 400s B.C. But we live in a time where many within the church find themselves in despair for repair. We live in a time when many within the church have no vision. We see where the walls of morality and virtue have been torn down. We see where the gates of decency have been set aflame and are no more. We see the church in name often, but we don't see the church. We don't see the church as anything but a mere shell of what the church was. The walls of separation between the church and the world have faded away. They've been destroyed. And there's those that say, well, yes, that's a good thing. The problem is, is that we've compromised the truth by doing that. We've capitulated down to what the world wants or what the world thinks instead of the truth of God. The gates of glory of God's house. The glory of the believer to give glory to God in all things. In many cases have been burned by the flames of sin. It's been tarnished by apathy. God's just going to be good and God's just going to love and he's going to embrace everything that the world offers because God is a God of love. The problem is, is when the church goes there, we begin to wallow in the mud of despair. And we have to ask ourselves, are we going to stay there or are we going to be a about the revitalization of the church for the purpose of God, for the kingdom of God, that the church will be about the lost. The church will be about what God has called us to do. Go and share the gospel so that others will hear the good news of Christ. What do people a vision do when they encounter problems. First, we're to remain calm. If we look at verse 1 of this chapter 1 of Nehemiah, we see that Nehemiah is a cupbearer, and Nehemiah is living in peace and prosperity, and, and he has political power among those that he is a part of. His job was to taste food and wine and prevent the king from being poisoned. But he was one of the most trusted men in all of the king's kingdom. Often the kings would look at their cupbearers for advice because they knew that they could trust them. They were willing to and, and, and did literally in some cases sacrifice their life for their king. Nehemiah was being developed by God to remain calm. 
common situations. How do we know that? Because as you move through the chapters of Nehemiah, as you see Nehemiah return to Jerusalem, and you see all that he faces, the difficulties, the hardships, the naysayers, why in the world are you doing this? You can't do this. Nehemiah remains calm in the midst of what God is doing. In fact, he probably didn't say this, but he probably could have. God's got this, people. God's got this. Don't be in despair. We're going to be about repair. We're going to rebuild the walls of this city. And we're going to give God the glory for it. And so... Nehemiah remains calm in the midst of the situation that he finds himself in. Secondly, when we encounter problems as visionary people, we need to understand that the calamity will come. There's going to be issues along the way. Any rebuilding plan, any revitalization plan that's going to take place There are going to be issues. There's going to be some speed bumps along the way. And there was in Nehemiah's life. And in this case, in verse 2 and 3, when uh, Hananiah, his brother, comes and other men from Judah come and, and give him this story about what is happening in Jerusalem, that it's devastated, the walls are destroyed, the gates are destroyed. This causes Nehemiah to see the desperation of his people. It's amazing how life can be perfect at one moment and just in a twinkling of an eye where something can happen and bring havoc. But what we need to ask ourselves is in the midst of that calamity... Do we find ourselves in despair or not? Those, when calamity comes, our life will either show one of two emotions usually. One is concern and the other is despair. And they are, those are totally two different emotions in our life. Concern usually brings action. Despair usually brings inaction. Keep that in mind. Concern usually brings action. Despair usually brings inaction. For Nehemiah, he has concern, and his concern actually brings compassion. He has compassion for those that he is hearing about. It is breaking his heart. He, he falls in and weeps and his heart breaks for those that are in Jerusalem, in Judah, that have experienced all that they have. And he is brought to his knees in compassion for those that he loves, his people that he cares for. He falls to his knees in prayer to his father, his father God. And folks, that is the key for us that we fall before the Lord on our knees in prayer. If we do not fall before the Lord in prayer in all things, 
we will find ourselves in despair. So how do people of God form a vision? God has a way of kind of stirring up our nests to get our attention sometimes. Uh, Sometimes when we get complacent, God will allow things to happen either in our life, in our church, in our families, in our workplace. He will get our attention. And it has been no different from time. And we see this in the nation of Israel. He gets their attention. He allows them to go again into captivity by the Babylonians. And here Nehemiah has a heart. He has a heart for his people. And he has his minds on the matter, his mind on the matter of the things that God is giving to him. And in this moment, in this very moment, as he receives this news about Israel, as he hears this news about Jerusalem, he understands that the only way that any rebuilding, any revitalization, anything that would happen is going have to involve the Lord. When God stirs our nest, when God stirs our hearts, when God brings us to the point of compassion for what is going on in and around us or through us in our church, our families, whatever that situation is, He is calling us. He is calling us to act. He is calling us to be like Isaiah, to respond eagerly to the invitation, Here I am, Lord, send me. Not like Jonah, who runs and flees, or not like Moses in some situations where Moses actually took things in his own hands, thinking that his way was going to be the right way to do things. But in both of those examples... God still brought them to their knees so that his way, the right way, would be handled. God knows how to get our attention. God desires our heart. God desires that when he calls us and he has a plan before us, when he gives us the opportunity to serve him, that we will latch on to that opportunity, that we will listen. And how does the listening take place? Nehemiah gives us this wonderfully great prayer because you see, Nehemiah goes to the Lord in prayer about the situation that's before him. So today, over the, just the next few minutes, I quickly want to give you several words that involve vision, involves what Nehemiah gave to as he was getting ready to be used by God for God's purpose back in Jerusalem. And Nehemiah starts off in verse 5 with praise. Visionary praying involves 
praise. Nehemiah begins to exalt the Lord, to bring adoration to the Lord. He praises God for his spirit, uh, uh, superiority and for his strength and his sovereignty. He praises him for his sacredness and for his sincerity. He praises God and extols him for who he is. The very character of God he lifts up. And we should remember as we know what God has given us through Jesus, as Jesus in Matthew 6, 9 tells us, this is how you should pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We are to lift up praise to our Father in heaven. The psalmist in 100, Psalm 100, verse 4, enter to his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. Author, scholar, pastor N.T. Wright says, We often become like what we worship. We take on the character of the objects that we worship. And he says, think of it this way. Someone that worships money can't get enough of it. They fantasize about it. Someone that worships power becomes more and more ruthless to gain more and more power. And then he says this, Those who worship God discover what it means to be fully alive. Folks, if we repair, we revitalize, it is going to begin with prayer and the very first thing that we have to do is acknowledge praise to God for who he is. Next, visionary praying involves perseverance. As I said, Nehemiah got the news somewhere around December as he is uh, in the, the winter resort for the king. And we know that it took a few months before he was able to make this journey. And even here in the text, it says that he prayed day and night to the Lord. He persevered in asking the Lord, demonstrating that I'm not going to just say it one time. So often in the church, we offer our prayers to God and we will pray, Oh God, will you save this person? These, this person is so near and dear to us. This is my brother or cousin or whatever, and we pray for them one time and we let it go. If it's really on our heart, if it's, it's really important to us, shouldn't we continue to pray until God answers that prayer? And his answer is going to be either, yes, I'm going to do that, no, I'm not, or just wait. Nehemiah persevered in praying. God taught Jesus taught his disciples to continue in prayer, Luke 18.1. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and never give up. If Jesus is teaching his disciples to never give up on prayer, why should we? After all, prayer is born out of a genuine burden of either praise or concern that we want to lift up to our God, knowing that he will answer it if it's a concern. 
vision involves perseverance. If we have a heart for vision, if God is calling us to the vision of the church to move forward for his kingdom, we have to persevere and we have to be in prayer continually, not just once, not even just twice, but we have to continually be in prayer for what God is calling us to. Next, visionary prayer involves penance. Nehemiah prays, and it's interesting how Nehemiah prays in verse 6b and verse 7 because he doesn't just pray for himself or he doesn't just pray for the Israelites. He actually prays for himself and the Israelites. He confesses the sins before God. I am sinful The people have been sinful. We have not lived into your commandments. We have not lived into your ordinances. We have not lived into your statutes. And he's talking about himself too. How many times have we prayed to God for ourselves in repentance, but also lifted up others in repentance. Psalm 66, 18, if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. So it is so important for us to give penance before the Lord, to repent, to confess before him, to get our heart right with him, to see God's vision for the church. Penance has to be a part of that plan. Visionary people praying involves promise. Verse 8 through 10, Nehemiah begins to lift up some of the promises that God had given those Israelites. And you say, well, Nehemiah didn't need to remind God of those promises he had made. No, he did not. In fact, his praying the promises were more for his benefit, not for God's. God didn't need reminding. Nehemiah did. And for us, as we pray, it involves praying the promises of God. God, you have promised to be with us. God, you have promised not to forsake us. God, you have promised to lead us through the power of the Holy Spirit. God, you have given us your word, and your word reminds us of this plan of salvation, this plan of promise, this plan of redemption and ultimately eternal life in your name. And so, are we praying, lifting up, reminding ourselves of the promises of God? Because when we pray the promises of God, we begin to see that God begins to reveal and open things to us. Now, before you jump to conclusions that I'm talking about prosperity gospel or a wish list, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about God staking his reputation, and he does, on the accuracy of his word and his promises. Psalm 138.2, I will bow down toward your holy temple. I will give thanks to your holy name for your loving kindness and your truth. For you have magnified your word according to your name. God is going to honor all that he has said, all that he has given, all the promises are going to be honored. 
Romans 4.21, and being fully assured that God, what God has promised, God will perform. And so when we pray the promises of God, we do so knowing that God's word is truth and that in his promises we do not have to despair. God says he will build his kingdom. And he will. And his desire is for us to participate as believers. Not fall in despair. But to help in bringing repair. Bringing those who are lost to him. Visionary praying involves partnership. Partners. Nehemiah was reminded that his effort, in this effort, it was not going to be him alone. It was going to take others. And it was going to take him praying that God would open up the door for others to help him. And we see as the journey unfolds and he goes back to Jerusalem, we see that God is going to bring multitudes to help to rebuild the walls around the city of Jerusalem. We are reminded that corporate prayer in Matthew 18, 19 is God's way. If two of you agree on earth about anything that you may ask, it shall be done by my Father who is in heaven. Again, this is not a wish list. This is not uh, a, a list of seeking things that you want. This is seeking God and God's will and purpose for you and for the church. When we are in movement forward for him and the vision that God has for the church, it will bring him glory and that's what we're called to do is to bring him glory. He wants us involved together for his purpose, for his church. And in this case, church, Hope Church. And the question will be this. Will we stand and join together? Or will you stand on the sidelines and watch others do it? Or will you bow out and leave and say, hmm, I don't think I want to be part of that because that's going to be work. This is going to take effort to live into God's future. Where will we stand in partnering together for God's will and purpose to bring him glory? And then finally in verse 11 he petitions God. He finally gets around to this petition, and, and he knows that he has to have this grace, this mercy of his king that will allow him to leave captivity and go to Jerusalem and work. And we know that he promises his king, King, if you will give me a letter to protect me as I go, I promise you I will come back. I promise I will not leave you, but I will serve you as long as I need. He knows that to prevail with man, he must prevail before the Lord. That he must bring his petitions to the Lord. 
Philippians 4, 6, be anxious in nothing, but in everything in, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be known before God. The Lord is interested in us. Does he already know what we need? Absolutely. But he asks us to come before him with our petitions. He asks us to pray before him. To bring this petition for us. And in this case, as we live into what's before us in this church, God is asking us to bring this petition before him. How many of you, and I do not want to see a show of hands, how many of you have already been praying every day for what God will do with and through this church? You answer that question to yourself. Are you praying? Are you bringing petition? God, enlarge our territory. God, bring people in that have the gifts and talents to do the work of the kingdom. God, use us in whatever way that you want us. Because you see, God is at work. He is at work. And the question is going to be, Will we embrace the providence of God who is already at work? So often, verse 11, that last section, that last phrase, sentence, is overlooked. It's just like, oh, he's just reminding us. Now, I was the cupbearer to the king. That's the final verse of this chapter. I was the cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah in this verse is indicating the weight of his assignment. This is who he was. This is what he did for the king. And he knew that who he was and, and, and what he was doing was no accident. God was preparing him to be at work for him, through him. And church, let me tell you, your place is no accident. Your place is no accident. Regardless of your place, position in life, whether here in the church or at work or at home or in your family or just name it, it's no accident. God's got you if you're a believer. And he has placed you at this time for his purpose and for his will to be a part of his church and what he wants to do here. There are no accidents or coincidences with God. And God wants to use us, our position for his glory. God also wants to use our gifts and our resources for his glory because those are no accidents. The resources that you have been given, whatever they are, are, are not luck. And when I talk about resources, I'm talking about your gifts and your talents that God has given you. Even your financial, your, your everything that you have resource-wise is to bring glory to God. And God is calling us to use our gifts and our talents and our resources for the building of his kingdom. And whatever you and I have... It's not by accident. Yes, we are to be thankful for it. 
We're to give God praise for it. We're to look for opportunity to use that for the building of the kingdom of God. And I will tell you that your power is no accident either. God, through Jesus Christ in his uh, farewell discourses, reminds us that he's going to give us the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is going to give us power. He's going to give us the words. He's going to give us the truth. He's going to give us understanding. And he is going to give us, through the power of the Holy Spirit, these gifts, this power dwells in us through the Holy Spirit to work the purpose of God. And God's expectation of us as believers is to use that for His will and His purpose. We need not have despair, church. We need not be in despair. We need not say, woe is us. What is God doing? God is working. God is living through us for his purpose. And he wants to use us. God wants us to be in touch with him. To be connected with him. Our church, our families, our community. This revitalization is important. So often though we get so busy serving God. We aren't able to hear his voice. I saw an acronym for busy. I thought it was interesting. You've probably seen this before. I had not seen it. Busy spelled out being under Satan's yoke. B-U-S-Y. And so often I think we are busy people for God, but we aren't accomplishing what God is calling us to. In other words, we are spending our time doing things, but we're not spending time in prayer. We're not spending time in repentance. We're not spending time in petition. We are not looking for what God is going to use us for. We're not using our gifts and our talents for his purpose. And he has called us to make a change in these last days. And you would say, we don't know when the Lord is returning. You are absolutely right. We don't. But it is my last day because I don't know if I'll get through today. If the Lord calls me home. And so we live in the last days constantly. And God is calling us to be his people to work. How is it that you want to live your life for God? Sidelines or engaged? In despair or be used for repair? Nehemiah was able to go back and, and rebuild the walls. And do you remember how long? 52 days. Think about that. You talk about amazing. 52 days. They were able to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. Do you remember how he did it? He engaged the families. And so JP's living here with his family and Nehemiah would go to him and say, JP, I want you and your family to build this section. And then he would go to Diane and say, Diane, I want you and your family to build this section. 
And he went to the families, he engaged people and brought them together for a purpose and for God's will. And all of them worked together. In 52 days, they completed the wall around Jerusalem. And what did they do? They got on top of the wall, and they marched around the wall, and they sang praises, and they played instruments, and they sang praises to God for what God had done. And Nehemiah, as they were praising God, as they praised God around that wall, reminded them of the law of God. Reminded them of what God had said and the promises God had given. There's going to be a Messiah who will come. There's going to be the promises fulfilled. And we live in that time post-resurrection. Post-Pentecost, we live in a time that is of God. And yes, I know I have just preached for 47 and a half minutes. But this is important, church, as we start this journey together. God is at work. And God will use us as we are flexible and pliable and engaged in how he wants to use us for his purpose. I look forward to what the Lord is going to do. Father, thank you for your word. This is precious word of Nehemiah's prayer in verses 5 through 11 of this first chapter. And we can read the rest of the, the chapters of Nehemiah and understand and know that you were with him, and you carried this journey to fruition. We will actually see that this week as we go through our devotional studies. And so, Father, we pray as a church called Hope that you would use us for your purpose, your will, that we would be engaged. Father, that we would set aside any despair or anxiousness of what you might be doing. For you have called us to go and make disciples. In your name, through your power, for Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.